have a message that I've been wanting to get to for a while that's really just a simple thought from my heart that I pray the Lord will help us as we grow as a church, that he would help us to implement a culture of discipleship. And we're going to talk about discipleship a little bit here this morning. So if you will listen, I'm going to try to get right into it, not waste any time and be able to get done on time and hope that the Lord will speak to us through this topic. I've entitled the message, A Culture of Discipleship, with the goal in the heart that God would give to our church a culture of making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get to the text. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I'll catch up here. Verse number 20 says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. In Matthew chapter 28, we see one of five separate accounts in the New Testament of what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission is when Jesus summed up the entire reason for why he came to earth, which was to die for the sins of mankind and offer salvation to all who would believe in Jesus and receive him as their savior. Going to heaven this morning does not require that we do more good than we do bad. It does not require that we faithfully attend a church or that we are baptized or that we come from a certain part of the world. Going to heaven simply requires that we look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and understand that he died not for his own sins, but for our sins. And if we will by faith say, yes, Jesus, I want you as my savior and receive him as savior, he will grant us eternal life and we will be spared on judgment day. The Great Commission has three different specific things. We've been talking about this recently. First of all, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's trying to make sure that each and every individual on planet Earth has the opportunity to hear and to know that Jesus died for your sins and you can be granted eternal life by believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, by asking him to save you, and by trusting completely in his finished work on the cross and not in your own good works or your own attempts to try and get to heaven through the good that you can do. The second part of the Great Commission is Jesus said, after salvation, see that all are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism does not save us, but water baptism by immersion after we have professed Christ as our Savior is the first step of obedience that God would require us to do. So it doesn't make sense to try and grow in grace and to do all of these things to mature as a Christian until after you've been baptized, for that is what we call the first commanded step of obedience. You've been saved. The very next thing that God would like you to look to do is to be baptized in his name so that you may publicly profess to the community, to your loved ones, and to all around you, I'm now a Christian. I am now identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and I am here, as Colossians chapter 2 says, to walk in newness of life. When we're baptized, we are ident- identified with Jesus Christ. And whether it's a shyness to want to admit to people you've never been baptized or being afraid of getting up in front of everyone, the simple fact of the matter is the pattern we see in Scripture, the direct instructions from Jesus, from the Apostle Paul, from Philip, and from all those who carried out the Great Commission, is after you've received Christ as 
as Savior, you should be baptized. You should be immersed in the water to profess to all around you, I now identify with Jesus Christ. I'm going to walk in newness of life. I am not ashamed. And by the way, at this church, I would venture to say there's not one single person who attends here that would judge you for getting baptized, but rather we would rejoice and be glad that a believer is looking to identify with Christ and proclaim to the world around you that you have been baptized. The third part of the Great Commission is what we want to talk about this morning. If you notice Matthew 28 in verse number 20, Jesus said, after you preach to them the gospel and after you baptize them, there's a third phase that I want you to continue laboring in so that you may fulfill the great commission. And that is to take those new converts and teach them whatsoever things I have commanded you. That entitles all that Jesus taught. That includes all that the word of God teaches and this is what we're speaking of when we use the phrase discipleship, that we want to make disciples, that we want to disciple new believers. The New Testament word for disciple simply means student, pupil, learner, or follower. You would say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're trying to say, I am a follower of Christ and I am a learner of the teachings of Christ. People have come to me before and they say, oh, wow, you know a lot about the Bible. And I don't really think that I do. But the favorite way that I would like to describe myself is that I am a student of the word of God. I pray that that's true. I'm saying that's my goal. I labor for that to be true, that for the rest of my life, I would have a passion to learn what the Bible says. And rather than getting to the place where we're proud and puffed up in our knowledge and we think we know more than everyone else and we want to show off how much we know the Bible and tell them how they're wrong, I believe when we come to the word of God, we should do so humbly as approaching holy ground and say, God, I know I will never in this life know all there is to learn from this book. I will never get it down. I will never be a master of the Bible. But my goal is that I would allow the Bible to be my master, that Jesus would be my master, but that through his revealed written word, I would come to know more and more about Jesus Christ. Someone said a sign of when you're young is that you think you know it all. But a sign of maturity is when you really realize just how little you actually know and that you're never going to know it all. And that could apply to being a disciple of Christ as well. And we should, can and should get excited about studying all of the Bible. I like to study prophecy. I like to study the book of Revelation. I like to look into stories in Genesis where there's these big debates and it's what really was going on here or what was not. And I like to look at all that. And most anything that you ask me about, I probably have read a little bit about at least enough to have a sort of an opinion. But what we need to never lose our passion for is not just the mysteries and the prophecies and the cool stuff that maybe other people don't know yet, but it's for the meat of the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. What does the book of Colossians say and how does it apply to me? What about the minor prophets? What about the gospel of John? That we would not lose our passion for the word of God should be our goal and also for those basic, simple truths, yet that are the most profound. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's as great of a truth or greater than any truth that is contained in the word of God. So what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner, a student, a, a pupil. So we've defined, hopefully, the Great Commission. We've defined what it means to be a disciple. And now I'll give you some bullet points, some statements 
as we move forward. First of all, God desires for us to grow and mature after salvation. It's been said that if God's only goal for us was that we would get saved, he could simply take us to heaven the moment that we're saved. But that's not the end goal that Christ has for us as a disciple, as a Christian, is to get saved and then never learn anything else. Or never be discipled in the word of God. And ultimately, what the goal would be is that we would be able to lead others to Jesus Christ. That's the main purpose that he's left us here for. So herein, we find the Great Commission. The Great Commission is that someone told us how to be saved. So we've received Christ as Savior. So we study his word. We labor in the word. We learn. We grow. We mature. And eventually, we give the gospel to other people who come to Christ, who are baptized, and they begin to grow in their faith. And then they do the exact same thing. No, it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's the same idea of when there's a new convert, eventually they learn how to make new converts. But it's for the most wonderful cause in all of history. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we can be saved and that we can grow in grace and become a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. So God desires for us to grow and mature after salvation. A whole bunch of scriptures today that we're going to go through and try to keep it moving. I have them up there on the screen. If, if you can't see and you want to write down the reference or just listen, that's fine as well. Hebrews 5.12, the writer says this, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles and the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. What's Paul saying here? Did Paul write Hebrews? This is one of the ones that's debated, isn't it? No, okay, no one else knows. I think it sounds like Paul, but whoever wrote Hebrews, he's saying to them that you've been saved long enough. You've been in the body of Christ long enough that you should have matured and grown enough that you should be able to teach other people what I am now having to teach you. The first principles, the first oracles of God, rather than you having grown and matured enough as a Christian, which is what should have happened, I'm having to take you basically back to kindergarten and lay the groundwork and give you the basics again, because you're failing to do what God has called you to do, which is to grow in grace. Now, when he says at the end of verse 12, you're become as such as have need of milk and not of meat, he's talking about the same thing that he used this analogy in 1 Corinthians when he wrote to that church at Corinth that was having all kinds of strife and all kinds of fleshly distractions that Paul had to rebuke them over. And one of the things was that in that church at Corinth, they were split into factions, not over doctrine or truth, but over who their favorite preacher was. Some of the people in the church said, I am a follower of Paul. And then others would say, I am a follower of Apollos. And others would say, well, Peter is my favorite apostle. I'm a follower of Peter. And Paul goes on to rebuke them and correct them. And he says, Paul didn't die on a cross for you. Neither did Peter, neither did Apollos. We're all followers of Jesus Christ. And the goal is for unity in the body. So it's a wonderful thing to have a preacher who's a mentor or our, our guider and discipler in the faith. That's part of what we're talking about this morning. That's what happened in the Bible. God did use Paul. Paul said, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. So it's biblical and it's okay to follow a man or a woman, a spiritual leader or mentor in your life, so long as they're actually following Christ and leading you and guiding you according to the teachings of scripture. 
but we don't identify as followers of preachers or of people or of mentors. We identify as followers of Christ and we seek for unity. And when Paul was correcting them over that division, he said, I'm having to treat you as if you were babes in Christ rather than mature. And I can't feed you the meat of the word that I would like to feed you, but I have to feed you milk. So when a little baby is born, you can't just set down a medium rare steak in front of them and say, there, go at it. Here's your nutrition. You need the protein. They need time to grow and to mature. And I like that steak. I, I need that. Maybe not as much as I eat, but you know what I mean? I need the nutrition that comes from that. But the little baby needs milk just a little bit. And then they get hungry and they take that and they learn and they grow. And Paul says that you're acting like a little baby Christian when you actually have had enough time to grow into a mature Christian. Now, some people may look at a little baby and say, stop acting like a baby. And then you have to be reminded they are a baby. That's what babies do. They need time. They need patience. They need training. And when someone comes to Jesus Christ and professes faith in him, you can't look at someone who's never been taught or trained and saying, why are you still struggling? Why don't you know the word like you're supposed to? Why aren't you able to go teach other people? Because they're not going to learn all on their own. The pattern in the scripture is that God uses those who grow have grown in the faith to help new believers grow in the faith. So you have to be patient. You have to take time. You have to look at a person and realize they're a baby in Christ. They've just gotten saved. They need someone to lovingly walk with them arm in arm, teach them the Bible and give them time to grow and mature. But then sometimes there's people who have been taught. There's people who do know better. And they still slide away from what they've been taught. And that's where the frustration comes in. That's where sometimes a rebuke is needed. That's where Paul was saying, you know better. You should have been able to teach this to other people. You should have been a mature Christian. And notice he didn't tell them they weren't saved. Some people like to say, well, if I can see carnality in someone's life, that means they're not saved. They've never truly come to Christ. It's a false profession. And that often does happen. The Bible talks about someone who continuously continues in sin and doesn't show any evidence of salvation may very well be someone who said they professed Christ and believed in him, but they never actually did. They never actually received the Holy Spirit within them. They never actually were changed on the inside, and that's why they never changed on the outside. But I think the problem is that we ultimately are not able to make a judgment call on who knows God or not most of the time. Sometimes we think we can, but I'm convinced there's going to be a lot of people in heaven who we weren't expecting to see. And I know, according to the word of God, there's going to be a lot of people not in heaven who we thought were going to be there. Verse 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you see what the word of God is saying. The goal is not just that you would get saved and then you never grow in grace, but rather that you begin a lifelong process of learning the word of God, of becoming mature with the goal that ultimately you would be able to help teach others. Now, I added this in that I, I put in the message a couple of weeks ago. God has chosen to carry out the great commission through local churches. When a missionary is sent to the other side of the world, we still believe that it ultimately comes from a local church who has seen the need to see a ministry started, to see a missionary sent, that with 
prayer with believing that the Holy Ghost is in it. They lay hands on and ordain people and send them out to preach the gospel and to start other churches. Now, I chose to put this here because a local church, by definition, being carried out the way that it was in the Bible, is a church that is a visible, physical, accountable congregation that takes place in in-person gatherings. We're live streaming right now. We have people watch each and every week on the internet who couldn't come or for whatever reason didn't make it. And I think it's a great tool. And throughout the year of 2020, when COVID forced a lot of people to not be able to have church or people thought they couldn't go because of what their doctors told them and they were afraid for their health and everyone had to make their own decisions. And I respect what everyone decided because that was an unprecedented time. Live streaming was a great tool. But it can't replace the actual gathering of the body of Christ for those who are physically able. Hebrews tells us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So for those who are saved, who know the Lord, the biblical pattern and the biblical direction and command is that we would seek to be joined to a local New Testament church where we can physically go and attend. Now, I'm including this because in order to carry out the Great Commission and discipleship the way that the Bible truly lays it out, it's going to require a culture of getting to know one another. If you stay at home, you can stay at home and have your choice of who you want to watch preach, right? All the people in the nation, you can pick the best one. And this guy preaches better than Pastor Jack. I'm just going to stay home and watch him. And I'm sure they do. But if there's a ministry in New York or California that you watch online and you send money to, that may help help you and be a supplement to you growing in grace. But when you're in the hospital, that TV preacher can't come visit you. When your child is having a struggle or you have a family member that needs witness to, it's part of the way that God has designed it and laid it out is that we have a local congregation of other Christians where we faithfully go, where we love one another, we help one another, we pray for one another, we hold one another accountable, we rejoice in our blessings, we grieve in our losses. That's what God desires of a church family, and that requires a culture where you actually get to know something about the people that are part of the church where you go. Let me see here. Biblical discipleship, according to the word of God, is this. Mature believers being involved in the lives of new converts, guiding and teaching them as they grow in grace, which leads to what we would call replication. Paul was called of the Lord. Other people helped teach him. And then when Paul had his ministry, there were younger preachers that Paul trained and he taught them the same things that he had been taught. And Paul, rather than being able to have the influence that only he could have, he could train Timothy, who we'll talk about in a little bit, and Titus and other preachers. And then he could leave them in one of the cities where he had started a church and he could know that now he could go somewhere else and start another church and preach the gospel to another city and the man that he had trained would be able to replicate the ministry that God had given to the Apostle Paul. I do believe that in the first century church, what we see is that disciples of Christ and the church, the believers did life together. What do I mean by that? I've got to keep this moving. So let's go through the scriptures here. Acts chapter two and verse number 42 tells us about that first century church 
and they steadfastly continued in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. That was the apostles who were sent by God, who had the oversight of that church when it was in its infancy, would teach. This is the word of God. This is doctrine. They also continued in not just the apostles' doctrine, but fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Fellowship. They met with one another, and they broke bread. They shared a meal. They were in one another's houses. They got to know something about each other, and they became a family, and there was camaraderie. And by the way, in our world today, we see a lot of things that break our heart, and we see racial tension that are stirred up by bad actors on all sides, and we see actual racism, and we see people who have a prejudice and a suspicion of other people just because their skin color was different. What's the solution to that? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed and people believing. There's no room for prejudice or racism within the body of Christ. The Bible tells us that we all have been saved into one body. And Paul uses a, a whole chapter to tell this illustration of how individual believers come up to make up the body of Christ the same way that individual body parts make up our physical human body. And Paul says if all the body were the ear, then where were the seeing? And if all the body were the eye, then where were the hearing? He says, if your whole body was a giant eyeball, it wouldn't be able to function the way that we need to. And then he compares that to the New Testament church. And he says, you're different and you're different and you have a different background and you have different gifts. You have different talents and strengths and weaknesses, but you're all necessary to make up a complete and mature church. And this morning church, we need one another. You may not think that people need you here, but we do. We need each and every person that God desires to be a part of our fellowship, to be here and to add as God allows whatever your strengths are. As we encourage one another and seek to do life together and be a family, the breaking of bread. Amen. The first Baptist church they in the Bible, they like to eat all the time and share meals with one another. Acts chapter two and verse number 46 and they continuing daily with one accord. What is one accord? It's unity. Now look, unity does not mean lack of diversity. And that's what I, I the thought I was trying to get out was in that first century church, the racial tensions were far worse than they are in America today. You had Greeks and Samaritans and Jews who were taught from a young age to hate one another. But if you were living there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in the days after Jesus ascended back up into heaven, you might go to the marketplace and you'd stop and look, there's a group of people that are headed to a fellowship that are picking up the food, that are walking arm in arm that are talking to one another, that are smiling, that are singing praises to God. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are Greeks. Some of them are Samaritans. They're not hating each other like we're used to. They're all together with one accord in unity because Jesus Christ changed the hearts of those new converts who got saved. And the, the law can make all the laws that they want and laws are necessary sometimes. But racism can never be legislated out of the human heart. Sin and hatred can never be legislated away. It comes from within. But when Jesus Christ changes the heart inside of a new believer, we have zero room to be justified in hating someone else or being prejudiced simply because they're a different color or have a different background than we have. They were in one accord. They had unity. They continued daily in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They used the temple, I believe, for 
for witnessing, but sometimes for church services. From what I've read and what I can tell, I think that sometimes when enough of the Jews got saved, they took the temple and they came together to have their church meetings, but it didn't end there. For in each other's houses, they shared meals and they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts 5.42 And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now notice, here's what they did. They had gatherings where they all came together and heard the preaching, but also within one another's houses for their own family, for their neighborhoods, for their community. They continued in each and every house all the time. They ceased not without stopping. They preached, they taught, they declared Jesus Christ is the son of God. Acts 20 and verse 20, Paul says, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. He's talking to the elders or the pastors of the church here, but have showed you and have taught you. Notice what he says publicly and from house to house. The apostle Paul had a large part of his ministry that was public preaching and teaching. Sometimes it was what you would call street preaching. He would go into the town square. It was more of a, not really street preaching like you'd see people today standing on a corner. It was an organized type of time where people were used to going to Mars Hill and to other locations. And they would take their, their turns and they would talk about philosophy. And it says they never got tired of hearing a new thing. They didn't know the truth, but they wanted to hear what's a philosophy we've never heard before. What's a religion we've never heard before. And on Mars Hill, they had an inscription that said to the unknown God. Well, the apostle Paul was a wonderful evangelist. He was a great missionary. He was trained in apologetics. He was schooled and he could go to all of the different cultures and figure a way to get the gospel out to them in a way that was relevant. So I say to us this morning, Yes, the Bible gives us many things that we cannot change and we will not change. If the Bible says it, we will preach it. We will declare it. We will not be ashamed of it. It doesn't matter if people like it. It doesn't matter if they respond. It doesn't matter if it makes us popular or unpopular. We're going to teach the truth of the word of God. But Paul was not afraid to go to a different culture and to take a different strategy and approach so that by becoming all things to all men, by all means, he might win some. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Even though Paul was what you would call an Hebrew of the Hebrews, he called himself. He was a Pharisee. He knew all about the Old Testament law. He had zeal. He knew all of that. But throughout his education, he also learned how to speak different languages and intermingle with other cultures. So when he was with the Jews... He would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Why? They didn't have Christ being preached in their Old Testament Sabbath services. They were still looking to the Old Testament. They were saying the Messiah has not come yet. Paul went on the Sabbath day to the temple because he knew they had a tradition that at the end of their gathering, they would say, now would any of the older men like to get up and share something? And he would wait his turn. And then he would say, I would like to share something. And he would look to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Old Testament prophecies that clearly referred to Christ. And Paul would say, this is talking about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the only way to heaven. And you have to believe in him in order to get saved. And he would use the Sabbath day in the temple to preach the gospel. 
Well, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he went and waited till he could speak to the crowd. And he said, I see your inscription here to the unknown God. He says, well, I actually know what his name is. And it's Jesus Christ. And if you'll believe on him, you can have eternal life. So then we must not be afraid, church, though we can never change what the Bible says. I don't believe we should cling to tradition simply for tradition's sake. If God would allow us in some way to change or to be a little bit more effective at getting the gospel out with the goal of seeing people saved, we need to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So what did Paul say he did? Paul said, I taught you publicly and from house to house. So Paul was not just an evangelist. He was also a preacher, pastor, overseer, discipler. We see him preaching in an upper room as the church was gathered on a Sunday night. He preached till midnight. I know I preach long and you, you, you know, that may be a complaint, but I don't, I haven't done that so far. He preached so long that uh, what I'm get so off track. I'm just going to ignore that. You know what the story is. He preached till midnight. Someone fell out of the window. There was a miracle. Sometimes he preached to all the church gathered together in one place, but it also says he rented a room for, I believe, about a year and a half. And everyone who came to see him in that rented room, he discipled them. He taught them the word of God. It was a public type of preaching ministry. It was publicly and it was from house to house. Okay, I have a statement here. Biblical discipleship or becoming a mature Christian will require more than the pulpit ministry. Now, you're looking at someone who believes in the pulpit ministry of the New Testament church as strongly or more strongly than almost anyone. I believe that what we see in the Bible is that the pastors were called, as Paul told Timothy, to preach the word, to be instant, in season and out of season, to preach publicly, to be the messenger of the church, to give them the content that the word of God has. But I do believe that as we look at the biblical example, we saw Paul preaching, but we also saw him going from house to house and investing his life, years of his life, in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a Timothy and with a Titus and with other people who followed him on his missionary journey. So what I'm saying is, if I believe that all you ever do is come to church Sunday morning and hear the sermon, you're going to learn a lot of the Bible, and hopefully you learn as I preach but whether it's a mentor or not, you're going to need to become a student of the word on your own. You're going to need to find the sound teaching that today, I mean, there's a lot of error as well. But boy, if you get some good sources on YouTube or on Sermon Audio or good churches on their websites, hopefully you are constantly seeking out the teaching and preaching of the word of God. While you step on the elliptical, while you drive to work, while you do whatever it is, you can listen and before bed and at home or in the morning. We should seek to have a time to read the Bible for ourselves. Paul said that those who were in the congregation at Berea, at Berea were more noble than the other places he had preached. Why? For they daily searched the scriptures to see whether those things were so. You see, a good preacher who's sound in his doctrine, in his teaching, is not going to be offended or, dis or discouraged until you don't go waste your time studying that on your own. I've been to seminary. I've studied it. Just trust what I have to say. No, a preacher who is preaching sound doctrine will encourage you to go home and check your Bible for yourself. For therein you will know, is the preacher preaching the truth or not? Paul was not afraid of them studying on their own. Rather, he knew that as they searched the scriptures, they were going to find out what Paul is saying is true. Jesus is the Messiah. What he's preaching is right on the money. 
So I believe that I'm on biblical grounds to say, if all you ever did was listen to a sermon preached, yes, you may grow and learn and you should. But I believe you're going to be lacking in your growth, your discipleship and your maturity if you do not become a student of the word on your own. And we do see a biblical pattern of mature Christians taking other people under their wing, mentoring them and teaching them in a way that is one life involved with another life that is not just necessarily the whole congregation gathered for a preaching service. I hope that makes sense. I think that this statement follows the pattern we see in the scripture. Let's continue on. First Thessalonians 5, 11 through 13. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Verse 12. We, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to I'm sorry, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and to be at peace among yourselves. Short break here. No, go ahead. Okay. So what, what I wanted to point out is that it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, that them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, that would have to do, we believe, from what we see in Hebrews 13 and Timothy and Titus and in Acts would be the leadership of the church, the oversight, the pastors, those who are helping. It says, know them which labor among you. Get to know something about your spiritual mentor so that you may learn from their lifestyle as well as their public teaching. I do believe that's what the text is saying. We find the re requirements for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, which means overseer, we see it in the New Testament used interchangeably as pastor, overseer, and elder. Those who are ordained by God and called to have the oversight and leadership in the church. And by the way, if you, he desires that, he desires a good work. You should encourage your children if the Lord would call them into full-time ministry or your sons or whoever it is. If you feel God calling you to the ministry, it's a good work. God says so in his word. Okay, given among all of the requirements, which is he must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, apt to teach. Notice the second to the last phrase says a requirement of a pastor is that he be given to hospitality. The Greek word that underlies the phrase given to hospitality is, is defined by Strong's as fond of guest. It means what we would think of in the, the our modern day language, hospitality. It's receiving visitors. It's receiving guests. It's repeated the same in Titus 1.8 that a bishop must be a lover of hospitality and a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate. So then, the, in Thessalonians, he tells the congregation, get to know something about those who are over you that labor among you in the Lord. And here he says a requirement for being a pastor is that you must have a love of hospitality, of receiving people, of spending time with people as they would be your guest. Now there's limitations on every person. There's limitations all the way back in the book of Acts. The church exploded with growth and the overseers, the apostles couldn't keep up. So they said, let's get deacons. Let's let them serve the congregation. Let's help. 
uh, even a church of this size with myself working full time outside of it. I oftentimes feel that there's there's positives and negatives. And I, I know I fall behind on getting to share a meal with someone or on getting to know something about you and spending time in fellowship. And I've heard from pastors that as the church grew and grew and grew, it was kind of a sad thing that they had to come to peace and to terms with is that the church got so big that they weren't able to have lunch with every single person who attended and get to know something about them. But the principle still stands. And for those who would be on the pastoral staff to help if, if their church requires multiple pastors to meet the needs of the congregation, God says that between the pastors and the congregation, there should be more than just seeing each other for an hour on Sunday morning. There should seek to be the goal of some kind of a relationship where you know something about each other. A, a wonderful biblical example of what I'm talking about here in Acts chapter 18, some discipling that was taking place outside of the main preaching services that God mightily used. The Bible says in a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So he was instructed in the Lord. He was passionate and fervent in what he believed. And he was going about preaching and declaring what he knew. But it says he knew only the baptism of John. The baptism of John was the baptism of repentance. He baptized people and he said, repent for the Messiah is coming. He's, he's on his way. He's about to get here. Well, after Jesus finished his work on the cross and rose from the dead, we went from the baptism of repentance, meaning, hey, the Messiah is almost here, to now the message of the Messiah has already come, receive him as your Lord and Savior. But this man, Apollos, did not fully have yet explained to him the completion of the work of God and that the Messiah was come and that now the Great Commission differs slightly from what John the Baptist was saying right before Jesus showed up. So he didn't know yet. Why? Because he was a sinner? No, because no one took the time to teach him yet. But God used a couple in the church named Aquila and Priscilla, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. This couple named Aquila and Priscilla sought out and found this man who was preaching doctrine that wasn't quite mature or complete enough and they took him unto themselves. He came no doubt from what we read the indication is he probably came and stayed in their house. He had meetings with them and as a couple they led him and guided him through the doctrine that he was lacking in and the result is that after he learned he went about and exhorted the disciples and was able to help them much would had believed through grace. The indication is that he helped all those people. He mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly showing them the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. God used him mightily to see people brought to Christ, not just because someone was preaching in a meeting, though that's required by the Bible too, but because a godly couple said, would you mind coming to us? And he humbled himself, listened to what they had to say, and they discipled him. They taught him. Paul later said of Aquila and Priscilla that you should greet them because they are my helpers in Jesus. They've laid down their own necks for my sake. Here was a couple that from what we see, I someone can correct me. I don't remember reading that uh, the husband in that relationship was a prophet or a pastor or an apostle. I don't know. But what we see is that they helped 
be involved in taking someone who had zeal for the Lord but needed to learn more and took him to a one-on-two type of setting and helped teach him. And the Apostle Paul said, they are my helpers in the Lord. They laid down their life for my sake and they helped me accomplish what I could not. So if there's new believers and new new people coming to the church who know the Lord, who need taught, yes, I can and should be willing to receive them into my home and take time to guide them one-on-one so that they would learn and be discipled. But the goal is that other men in the church and other ladies in the church would grow and would mature and that you would be able to help me teach and disciple new believers through being involved in their life and through guiding them through the scriptures. In closing here this morning, we're going to consider the example of Paul and of Timothy. And I'm going to skip through some of this for time's sake that to quickly reference, but very simply in Acts chapter 16, we find that Paul came to a certain city and he found Timothy. Now, Timothy had a mother who was a Jew who had come to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, but his father was a Greek. The indication we find in scriptures is that his dad was not a believer. His dad was not saved, but his mother and his grandmother taught Timothy the scriptures from a young age. The, and the Bible says that Paul, when he came and met Timothy, he took him with him on his missionary journeys. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He led him to be circumcised so that he would be more effective in his ministry to the Jews, not because it was a requirement for everyone. And there's a reason that Jesus in the Great Commission said, I'm going to send you forth two by two. He didn't call us to go all on our own, but he called us to go in pairs. And the reason for that, part of it, no doubt, is that the discipling work may continue. The example we see from Paul and Timothy is an older, more mature pastor in the faith who was working with Timothy, who was an overseer in the church, but was young. Remember, let no man despise thy youth. And Paul helped lead him and guide him. And Timothy humbled himself and received his instructions. It led him to a relationship. As I said, I'll just summarize some of this. But he was able to rejoice before God because Timothy had grown in the faith. And Paul was filled with joy because he could remember the unfeigned faith that was placed in Timothy. That was able to be planted there in his heart. Because a godly mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures. And Paul was able to say, I am persuaded that I see that faith in you. He told him in 2 Timothy 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Look, look we're, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. I'm, I'm rushing to get through a couple more scripture references. But here's the whole thing. Here's the whole message this morning. Paul said to Timothy, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul said, Timothy, you know I've taught you. You know I've not left you out on your own. I've taught you and helped you to mature in the faith. Now I want you to take the things that I taught you and teach them to faithful men and then that those faithful men would be able to teach others also. Here is the work of the Great Commission. Here is the work of discipleship. It's not just about how much can one man accomplish. One man can do a lot. But if that man takes time to teach others. And if the older women help teach the younger, then we make people, we make disciples, not of ourselves, but of Jesus, but who can take what we were taught and learn it 
and then teach it to someone else so that hopefully the goal is eventually that person can learn it and teach it to someone else. This is the work of the Great Commission. Paul also said to Timothy, thou hast fully known not just my doctrine, but my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. In other words, Timothy had spent enough time with the Apostle Paul that he was able to know all of those things about him, his manner of living included. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 19 you can read this section later, verse 19 through 23. But he says to the church at Philippi that he's going to send Timothy to be there, to help them, to care for them. Because he didn't have anyone else who was like-minded, but he did have Timothy. Other people were seeking their own agendas and not the things which were Jesus Christ. But they knew the proof of Timothy, that just like a father-son relationship, even though they were not blood relatives, they were... He, Timothy was Paul's spiritual son in the Lord. And he trusted that he could send this Timothy who he had trained and that he would care for that local congregation just as well as the apostle Paul would have. One last verse and then a couple of closing statements and we're done. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ. As I teach everywhere in every church, Paul said, they're my ways, but they're my ways in Christ. Hence, he could say, be followers of me, but he didn't stop there. Pastors are not to look to get their own disciples, but rather to tell everyone what John the Baptist said. Get your eyes off me and get them on Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Paul told Timothy throughout his ministry, preach the word, fight the good fight. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. It was a relationship. He mentored him. It was consistent, patient discipleship. As we go forward for those who feel they need help, we can offer the one-on-one -on -one or small group discipleships. I can meet someone who needs help in any area, men in the church or whoever it may be with my wife. We can help. I'm limited by time, but we can meet for breakfast or coffee twice a month and I can pray for you and I can try to help you and point you to the scriptural truths of the word of God. We can do one-on-one -on -one studies, one-on-two, three or four. A faith Bible Institute is implemented by many different churches where it's a three-year program that systematically goes through the entire Bible on a college course type of level where you probably learn more Bible than you do in a lot of different Baptist overseen church Bible colleges, but people in different churches like my wife's former church and a pastor who visited that sat back here that I can't remember the name of the church he was from. And all over, I've heard stories of people instituted the Faith Bible Institute, and they met for three straight hours once a week with a group of 20, of 17, of 12, or of eight people who were hungry for the word of God and said, I want to go through all of the Bible systematically and get a diploma by completing this Bible Institute, I believe in seminary and Bible college that it's a great tool. But if God calls young men to preach here in this church, I believe I should be able to help lead them and guide them and be a part of training them for the ministry. Because if the local church is incapable of training preachers, then something's wrong with that. And not only can I strive to do this, but each and every one of you can seek to help me 
by taking a new believer when there's an opportunity under your wing, teaching them, guiding them through Bible studies, helping get a relationship with them, that they would have someone who knows their name and their struggles and their issues and who cares about them. And through all of this, I pray that God would give us a culture of patient, long-suffering discipleship where every person is given the opportunity to grow that we were given. Andrew's been a blessing when he's taught Sunday school and preached for me. You went through the program with Pastor Thrift, right? I heard him talking about that. Did you go through that class that he had for new preachers? Okay, never mind. He was taught by other people. But his pastor had a a system in his church where he sat down with the young men who were called to preach and he taught them about theology and about hermeneutics and exegesis and how to expositorily preach the word of God accurately. Some people say they get a blessing when I preach, but I had years, 15, actually 20 years before I became pastor. I stood up here and preached my first uh, excuse for a sermon when I was 11 years old. And when I wasn't fully mature, someone gave me opportunities to grow and to learn. And that's what each and every one of us need. And I pray that God would let us have that here. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Miss Karen will come and play. We'll have a brief couple of minutes for prayer. You can pray in your seat or at the altar this morning. I pray that all of us would seek God's guidance on this matter. I'm not trying to start a ministry or ask you to sign up for a class this morning, but I am praying that going forward, God would allow us to implement this relational type of mentorship and discipleship, be it a program or a book that Paul Chapel wrote that we go through with a new believer or be it just getting together for coffee and talking through the word of God. I want us as a church to know something about each other. And I want an opportunity, yes, through the pulpit ministry, but also outside of it to let new converts be able to grow. If there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as your savior, I pray that you would receive him as savior today. And if anyone would like to talk about that, I or anyone in this church would love to talk to you about what the Bible has to say about how we can know for sure that we can go to heaven when we die. Let's have a word of prayer.